So last week, we saw how Paul and Barnabas ministered in the synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, you remember that's different from Antioch in Syria, where they started their journey. Paul was invited to share a word of encouragement there at the synagogue, and he used that as an opportunity to preach Jesus from the Old Testament to all of the Jews who were gathered at the synagogue there in Antioch. After hearing this, the people begged that they could hear this again the following week, the following Sabbath day. And so our passage picks up the story where we left off. Uh, If you're able, uh, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? We're going to read Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. You and I live in a story. And God is the author of this story. The story began with the creation of a perfect world, continued to the fall of man into sin. The story continued into God's establishment of the nation of Israel to be his people that he would bless and use to bless the nations. It continued all the way to the coming of Christ, and it continues to this day. In Luke chapter 24, in verses 46 through 47, Jesus described this story, this plan of God to his disciples when he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. God's been writing this story in history, and he has written his story in the Bible. And so when Jesus said that it was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, what he was saying is it was part of God's plan. And so when he continues and says, 
that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. What he is saying is that that proclamation is part of God's plan. Jesus explains that we proclaim God's word within God's plan. The sovereign author of history has chosen that at this point in the story, the word would be proclaimed. As we come to Acts 13 this morning, my burden for us is that we would learn from Acts 13 what it looks like to proclaim God's word within his story. How knowing the plan affects how we live within God's plan. And to do this, I want to highlight three truths about God's plan that we see play out in this passage. First of all, rejection is part of God's plan. Rejection is part of God's plan. So as Paul and Barnabas preached the first Sabbath day, the people begged to hear it again. But apparently, word about this preaching that was so sought after spread beyond just the crowd of Jews in the synagogue because of what we see in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, so the majority of people who lived in this town, history tells us, uh, were Gentiles. So here's the picture. The Sabbath, that last Sabbath, had a normal crowd of Jews at the synagogue. They were there to hear the normal thing they would normally hear from the synagogue leaders. They were gathered together as a a small group of Jews, just as they always would. But this Sabbath, not only was the normal crowd of Jews there, they had invited the whole town of Gentiles to come. And so this uh, Sabbath day at the synagogue, the synagogue was overrun with people from all over the city who were eager to hear the word of the Lord from Paul and Barnabas. So the synagogue had record attendance, but the people weren't coming to hear the teaching of the synagogue leaders. They were coming to hear these Christians, Paul and Barnabas, teach the scriptures. Well, so record attendance, but not for the synagogue leaders. How do you suppose that sat with the synagogue leaders. Well, Luke tells us in verse 45 that when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So the Jews were jealous of Paul and Barnabas. This massive crowd of people had come to hear the message of two outsiders. And they came, frankly, to hear a message that was different than what was normally taught at the synagogue. So the Jews were not about to just stand by and let this happen. They countered what Paul taught. They contradicted it. They verbally attacked Paul, reviling him. And so Paul and Barnabas respond to this hostility in verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
So because of the Jews' rejection of the gospel, Paul and Barnabas would turn in their proclamation ministry and Antioch to the Gentiles. Now, Paul and Barnabas had taken the gospel to the Jews of Antioch first. This wasn't just their pattern. It was necessary, they say in the text. It was God's will that they would go first to the Jews in that town before they go anywhere else. But the Jews thrust aside the word. They rejected the gospel. And as a result of that, they went on to the Gentiles. What happened in Antioch in Pisidia is just one example of a pattern that is repeated throughout the New Testament. The gospel goes to the Jews first in an area. The Jews, by and large, reject the gospel. And so the gospel goes to the Gentiles. We see this pattern because each of those individual stories are just local examples of what God was up to globally. At this stage of history, God had sent the Messiah to Israel and they rejected him. But their rejection of the Messiah opened up the door for the Gentiles to be brought in to the fold of the people of God. It was all part of God's sovereign plan. So, it was all part of God's sovereign plan that the Jews would reject the Messiah and by the rejection open up the way for Gentiles to be brought into the fold of God. But if, okay, so if Israel rejecting God is part of God's plan, does that mean that God has rejected Israel? No. Paul will later write about this in Romans 11. Paul describes how a partial hardening has come on Israel. In other words, not every single Jew without exception rejects the gospel. Many Jews have trusted in Jesus, including Paul himself, by the way. But in God's providence, Israel as a group has, by and large, rejected Jesus. So, but still, why would God make this part of his plan? Why would God choose for Israel to reject him? Is he being cruel? Absolutely not. His purpose in this is mercy. Israel's rejection happened by God's design so that through their rejection, salvation could come to the Gentiles. So that mercy could be extended beyond just one nation to every nation on the earth. Uh, but still, isn't God neglecting Jews? Not at all. In fact, what Paul says in Romans 11 is that part of God's purpose in bringing salvation to the Gentiles is to make Israel jealous so that they'll turn to Jesus and be saved. It's all a design so that God can show mercy not only to the Gentiles, but even to Israel who has rejected him. God's ordained a partial hardening on Israel so he can show mercy to the Gentiles 
so that through showing mercy to the Gentiles, he can show mercy to Israel again. Sadly, though, the Jews in Antioch did not take advantage of the mercy of God that was available to them that day at the synagogue. In fact, they didn't just stop at rejecting the gospel or even at kicking Paul and Barnabas out of the synagogue. They wanted them out of town. So that's why we see in verses 50 and 51, the Jews incite the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And they drive them out of the district. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Uh, so even what Paul and Barnabas do here is a fulfillment of God's word. It's part of this plan, this story that God has authored. In Luke 9, 5, when Jesus sent out his apostles to share the gospel, he said, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So why did God, or why did uh, Jesus give them this instruction? Well, shaking off the dust from their feet was a symbolic action. And it was indicating judgment. The ministers of the gospel had done their part. They went into town. They preached the gospel. They have the town's dust on their feet to prove that they did their part. So if the people in that town don't believe, it's not because someone didn't preach the gospel to them. It is on them. They rejected the gospel. So when the disciples shake the dust from their feet, they're saying, we are witnesses that you have received the gospel but you rejected the gospel. And this rejection is part of God's plan. How do we respond to this truth that rejection is part of God's plan? Well, first of all, don't be discouraged. As ministers of the gospel, trying to proclaim God's word within God's plan, when we realize that rejection is part of the plan, we should not be discouraged. When we share the gospel and it's rejected, it's tempting to feel like a failure. And to be fair, it is possible for me to be rejected for my failure. I mean, if I try to share the gospel by saying, hey, you're a fool if you don't accept Jesus, that's on me. Okay, if I'm rejected, that's, they're rejecting me not the gospel, but when a person rejects the gospel that I proclaim, that doesn't make me a failure. We're called to be faithful, to share the gospel, not to get results. The gospel will be rejected. The gospel will be rejected, not by all, but the gospel will be rejected. That's to be expected. It's part of the plan. So we should not quit out of discouragement when that happens. Instead, like Paul and Barnabas, we should just keep moving ahead faithfully within God's plan. Uh, there's a second application, though, that we need to take from this passage. And that is, be warned. Be warned. If rejection is part of God's plan, that means that 
I can't just sit back and think that it's going to be okay for me in the end. It's all going to work out for everybody. No. According to God's plan, for many it will not be okay. So I have a responsibility to make sure I'm not a part of that group that rejects Jesus. Notice back in the text, when Paul and Barnabas spoke to the Jews, they did not say, God has judged you unworthy of eternal life. No. God invited them to receive eternal life. I mean, just a week before, Paul said to these same Jews, brothers, to us has been sent the message of salvation. He said that in verse 26. In verse 38, he said, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. No, God invited them to receive eternal life. Paul and Barnabas say that they judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. So we should hear this as a strong warning. Do not judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. What does it mean to judge ourselves unworthy of eternal life? Well, this phrase is actually meant to be a bit ironic. Because the truth of the gospel is that we're all unworthy of eternal life. Tim Keller puts it this way. The irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit you're completely unworthy of it. Let me say that again. The irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit you are completely unworthy of it. When the Pharisees grumbled about Jesus eating and drinking with sinners, Jesus responded in Luke 5, 31 and 32, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what does it mean to judge yourself unworthy of eternal life? It means to think that you're so worthy that you don't need Jesus. If you and I are to receive eternal life, a relationship with God for all of eternity, we must first admit that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. If the physician is going to heal us, we have to admit that we are sick. Don't believe the lie that you are good enough for God to accept you. The beauty of the gospel is that although we were worthy of nothing but eternal death, Jesus died for us in order to make us worthy of eternal life in him. So don't hear this good news and thrust it aside because you think you can make it on your own. Admit that you are unworthy and trust in Jesus to make you worthy. Well, rejection is part of God's plan. Second, proclamation is part of God's plan. We see this in verse 47. As Paul and Barnabas tell the Jews that they're turning to the Gentiles, they explain that this was part of God's sovereign plan. And they make this point 
by quoting scripture. Look at verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The verse they quoted is Isaiah 49 and verse 6. So Isaiah 49 is a section of Isaiah that's focused on this figure called the Lord's servant. And in the context of Isaiah, it's not always clear who the servant is. In some passages, God even says his servant is Israel. But then in other passages, God talks about this servant in a way that indicates the servant has to be someone other than Israel. And Isaiah 49 is one of those, uh, 49.6 is one of those verses where it seems that the servant is not Israel. So listen to Isaiah 49.6 in its original context. God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So God says that his servant would not only bring Israel back to God, the servant will also be a light for the Gentiles in order that the ends of the earth might receive his salvation. So the reason for this kind of confusion about who the servant is is the reality is Israel was supposed to be God's servant, his light for the Gentiles, but they rebelled against God and did not fulfill this purpose that he had for them. So now the Lord's servant talked about in Isaiah 49.6, whoever this is, is not only to shine into the darkness of the Gentiles, but is also to bring back Israel, who has rebelled against God. Well, the New Testament teaches that Isaiah's servant is ultimately Jesus. In Matthew 12, verse 18, Matthew says that Jesus was the fulfillment of another passage about the Lord's servant. Isaiah 42, which says, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Isaiah's servant is ultimately Jesus. Jesus is the one who would not only bring Israel back to God, but would be a light for the nations, so that the salvation of God would reach to the end of the earth. But there's even more that we need to see. So in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas don't say that Jesus is the light to the Gentiles. Look at verse 47 again. They say, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas are saying the Lord has made us the light for the Gentiles. The light that the Lord's servant was supposed to be. Okay, so how do we put all this together? The Lord had established a purpose for Israel to be a light for the Gentiles. God has ultimately fulfilled that purpose in Christ. But now, all of those who trust in Christ have been joined to Jesus by faith. And in so doing, we have been joined to his mission to be a light to the nations. That's why Jesus can say 
in John 9, 5, I am the light of the world. But then in Matthew 5, 14, say to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Jesus is the servant whom God has appointed to be the light to the Gentiles. And because we are united to him by faith, we have been given the mission of being a light to the Gentiles. Uh, Even the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended echoes Isaiah 49, 6. And God's mission to bring salvation to the end of the earth. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Remember, that's something also that uh, Isaiah said the servant, uh, what happened to the servant. Uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Another phrase from Isaiah 49.6. What we see here is what we've seen over and over in the book of Acts. Acts is about how Jesus continues the mission that he began in his earthly ministry. He is continuing to carry out the mission of God as God's servant to be the light to the Gentiles. And the way he is fulfilling the mission that God has given him, he is doing it from heaven through his disciples, us on earth. Jesus has called us to be on mission with him. That's why Paul and Barnabas and we can say that God has made us a light for the nations, that his salvation would go to the ends of the earth. This proclamation is part of God's plan. How should we respond to this truth? Well, there's many ways that we can respond to this truth. I mean, we've been invited to share in Jesus' mission. The light to the Gentiles has made us a light to the Gentiles in us. We've been joined to him. He's invited us to be on mission with him. I mean, that should encourage us. That should make us bold that we are being accompanied by Jesus as we carry out the mission that he has given us, that he is performing through us. But I want to highlight one specific application And that is, be prayerful. Be prayerful. Pray that we would carry out the mission of Jesus in his way. This verse should be a reminder to us that our mission is not our own. He hasn't left it up to us to figure out what we ought to do by our own wisdom. We are the light to the Gentiles because we are in Christ. Jesus is sharing his mission with us. So we need to align our hearts with Jesus as we carry out his mission. And in prayer, we align our will to Jesus's will. We should pray that we would carry out his mission, his way. We should also pray for his power to proclaim. Jesus has promised his presence and his power to us for evangelism. As we carry out our mission, he is carrying out his mission through us. So we should ask for what he's already promised to give us, his power to proclaim through his very presence. And we should pray for fruit. The one who invites us to be on mission with him is the one who died for sins, who conquered the grave, and who alone has the ability to raise dead souls from the grave. 
So as we join the light to the Gentiles in his mission, let's pray that he would shine through us in a way that only he can and pray that he, through our ministry, would deliver people from the domain of darkness and transfer them into his kingdom. Let's pray to the one through whom proclamation is part of God's plan. Number three, reception is part of God's plan. The receiving of the gospel is part of God's plan. The Jews' rejection of the gospel was part of God's plan. And the disciples' proclamation of the gospel is part of God's plan. And, and what is the plan? <laughs> it's to get the gospel to the Gentiles so that they would receive it. The Jews' rejection paved the way for the Gentiles' reception of the gospel. And the disciples' proclamation ministry was then to get the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what happens in verses 48 and 49. The Gentiles heard Paul and Barnabas say that they're turning to them. And here's what happened next. The Gentiles heard this and they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And what a contrast from what happened with the Jews. The Jews were filled with jealousy, but the Gentiles were filled with joy. They were thrilled that God's message of salvation was for them. The Jews contradicted the word of the Lord, but the Gentiles glorified the word of the Lord. In fact, the reception was so good that the word was spreading throughout the whole region. Despite the fact that the Jews in this region rejected the gospel, the gospel still spread. In fact, as we saw before, we could say it was because the Jews rejected the gospel that the gospel spread among the Gentiles throughout that region. The gospel spread. People believed. They became disciples of Jesus. Even though the Jews ran Paul and Barnabas out of town, the gospel still took root. A church was begun as people received the gospel according to God's plan. After Paul and Barnabas had moved on to the next town, Luke says in verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Those Jews who were filled with jealousy did nothing to stop God from filling a church in Antioch with new disciples who were filled with joy. And filled with the Holy Spirit. The gospel spread. The church was established. And the disciples flourished. Well, we see in this passage another example of God's sovereignty at work. Before we saw how the Jews' rejection of the gospel was due to God's sovereign action. Now Luke tells us that the Gentiles' reception of the gospel was also due to God's sovereign action. Those who believed, Luke says, God appointed to eternal life. So we see here one example of a doctrine that the Bible teaches in many places. The doctrine of election. 
the Bible teaches that man is so sinful that no one would ever turn to God on their own. If anyone is to be saved from sin, God must act. So God chooses to save people. He chooses to take people who were dead and their trespasses and sins and make them alive together with Christ by his grace, we're told in Ephesians 2. He appoints people to eternal life. So the doctrine of election, God's sovereignty in salvation, is not a popular doctrine. Uh, Many people believe that the doctrine of election is incompatible with other truths in the Bible. One of the main objections that people raise is this. Well, if God sovereignly appoints people to eternal life, then why evangelize? Well, in light of this, isn't it interesting that we're reading the phrase appointed to eternal life in a passage about evangelism? This passage demonstrates that election and evangelism work together. God is sovereign and man is responsible. So if you want a full explanation of God's sovereignty and evangelism, read the book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. But I will just highlight a, a couple of points from our passage about how evangelism and the sovereignty of God work together. Uh, first of all, we have to recognize evangelism is still necessary. The fact that God sovereignly appoints people to eternal life in no way changes the fact that evangelism is necessary. The God who appointed these people to eternal life also ordained that they had to hear the gospel from preachers who chose to share the gospel with them. They would not have been saved if they had not heard the gospel. Paul says in Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So God, who is sovereign, has ordained that there must be preaching of the gospel. There must be hearing of the gospel before someone believes the gospel. So if you think that the doctrine of election means you don't have to evangelize, you don't have a doctrine problem. You have a disobedience problem. Jesus has commanded us to preach the gospel. And no doctrine of scripture will ever make it okay to disobey scripture. Evangelism is necessary by God's sovereign plan. Faith is also necessary. Those who God appointed to eternal life believed Luke says here, God didn't believe for them. They believed for themselves. They would not have been saved if they had not chosen to trust in Jesus to save them from their sins. In Acts 16, we're going to see that Paul is going to encounter a Philippian jailer who will ask him, what must I do to be saved? And Paul does not say, I just hope you're appointed. No, 
He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So election and evangelism work together. Election in no way eliminates or negates evangelism. So there's more, though, that we need to say about this. We need to say more than just election doesn't contradict evangelism. The truth is election emboldens evangelism. Reception, receiving of the gospel is part of God's plan. And that should mean that we would be bold with the gospel. So in Evangelism in the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer describes how the sovereignty of God in salvation is actually our only hope of success in evangelism. Listen to what he says. So far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. For it creates the possibility, indeed, the certainty that evangelism will be fruitful. Apart from it, there is not even a possibility of evangelism being fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. But we can go out and share the gospel boldly because of God's sovereign power. Because God elects. Because God appoints people to eternal life. We can share the gospel knowing that God has the power to change the hardest heart. Because he is the God who is sovereign over the souls of men. And if God has appointed a person to be saved, even if to us they're the least likely candidate, evangelism, uh, least likely candidate for evangelism, that person will believe if God has appointed them to eternal life. We can go out and share the gospel boldly because we know we're not wasting our time. We can be certain that there are people out there whom God has appointed for eternal life, who are waiting for a preacher to take the gospel and bring it to them so that they can hear and believe. Jesus said in Luke 10 and verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There are plenty of people in the world who have been appointed to eternal life. The problem is there's not enough people out there, or excuse me, the problem is not that there aren't enough people out there who want to hear the gospel. The problem is that there aren't enough laborers willing to go share the gospel. We'll see in Acts 18, when Paul is in Corinth, the Lord motivates him, emboldens him to preach the gospel by telling him about his election. 
in Acts 18.10, he tells him to keep preaching the gospel. Don't be discouraged. Don't quit. Be bold because I have many in this city who are my people. God wants to take this truth that he elects people for salvation, that he appoints people for eternal life, and he wants to do the opposite of discouraging evangelism. He does with Paul, he emboldens him for evangelism, encourages evangelism because he has people out there. The fields are white unto harvest. Because God has appointed people to eternal life, J.I. Packer says, you have every reason to be bold and free and natural and hopeful of success. Because reception is part of the plan. So again, in sum, how should we live within God's plan? God's plan that includes rejection, but it includes proclamation, and includes reception. How should we live? Don't be discouraged when you face rejection. Remember, because God is in control, we can move forward in faithfulness. But be warned. Don't judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Admit your need for Jesus and trust him to make you worthy. Be prayerful. Remember that this is Jesus' mission. So let's align ourselves with him through prayer and ask him to do what only he can do as the God who is sovereign over salvation. And then finally, let's be bold. God has appointed people to eternal life. They're out there. All we have to do is go get them. That's our mission. Our mission is not, I'm going to go and I hope maybe sometime it might work. No, our mission is go and they're out there and there are people who need the gospel, will believe the gospel, and are appointed to eternal life. The mission God calls us to is a mission that is certain to succeed. So let's be bold, let's be prayerful, let's not be discouraged because our God is the author of this story. And he has established a plan that he will see to its conclusion. Let's pray together. Father, you are the sovereign God. You, to you belongs salvation. And so, Lord, we as ministers who 